0: Most of you at this time are coming into the last days of your retreat. And I say this not to suggest that the end is upon you, but more to really invite you to be aware of the, the preciousness of the time of the latter days of a retreat, when Many good qualities of heart and mind have been nourished, have been cultivated, have been developed through your practice over these days, these weeks. And to not be drawn too quickly towards the sense of ending or thinking about after, there is still a significant number of days to practice. And what I'd like to speak about today is how we hold, how you hold, your spiritual vision. How you orient, or what it is you orient towards when you engage in practice. Because it seems to me it's very easy to Do not really trust in our capacity to awaken. To not really trust in our capacity to realize the truth, to liberate our hearts and our minds. And the trusting in this capacity is an essential ingredient in that possibility manifesting, becoming real. And this, to me, is a question of spiritual vision. The Buddha sat down 2,600 years ago under a tree. And he made a commitment that, when I reflect upon it, it, still sends something of a shiver up my spine. He said, I will sit here until I have realized The truth until I have realized what can be realized by a human being. Though my blood runs dry, though my bones turn to dust, I will sit here, I will not move until I have realized this. And there's something about that commitment that expresses a profound faith and a conviction and a courage to say, To this possibility. To the human capacity for awakening. To say yes to that. Not in the theoretical or the abstract or the future or on behalf of someone else or sort of nebulous all beings probably could but actually yes, this being. Not in a sense of making too much of oneself in that but yet recognizing that each and every being All human beings have this capacity. This was not only the Buddha's realization, but something that he understood before his realization, i.e. that it was possible. And it's said in the story of the Buddha, that having made this commitment, he was challenged by Mara. And I'm sure you know the story well. The personification of ignorance, greed, hatred and delusion represented rather colourfully in the tradition as something of a demon. And he assailed the Buddha with threats and challenges and temptations in different forms, none of which had any effect. And ultimately he questioned the Buddha. He said, what right have you got to sit on the seat to take this position and the story recounts as again, I'm sure you know, that the Buddha reached out and touched the earth. And this is the, the image of the touching the earth mudra that we see in the, the Buddha Rupa here, in the house, in the shrine. Touching the earth, affirming his right, his capacity as a human being to awaken. What does it mean for you to touch the earth, for each of us to touch the earth? To align ourselves with the stream of the Buddha's, not just as teaching and as practice, but as recognition that you, I, we, each of us, have this capacity. And that in touching the earth, in allowing ourselves to trust this, we open ourselves to being touched by that realisation in a way which we cannot be touched without that trust because we so easily it seems to me we so easily set up obstacles create belief systems and structures which suggest that actually well, it's a nice idea but no, not really me not possible for me Can we trust that awakening is possible? And not just a possibility in some theory, but that its potential is immediate, and always and only so. Immediate. Without delay in time. Because it does not refer to time. But we, as mostly human beings in a conventional mode of thinking or relating, conceive in terms of time, think in terms of distance, relate from a point of locating ourselves here and locating enlightenment somewhere else. And when we do that, we set unintentionally and unconsciously a barrier. That doesn't have any ultimate capacity to limit us, but so long as we believe in it, has that effect. And so we can examine to see, examine our own mind, examine how we are relating to our practice, to our experience, and to that spiritual vision I spoke of. We can examine that to see, to consider. Am I limiting what is possible in the way I'm conceiving, in the way I'm looking? And is that affecting how I practice? What I'm actually open to in this moment? One of the things that's pretty common, and I suspect familiar to all of us in this room, is the the fascination we have with improvement, with becoming a better self. There's so many things I could improve upon in my body and in my mind, and I suspect your bodies and your minds are not different in that regard. And certainly the tendency to think, well I need to fix this, certainly I've got to deal with that first before anything else is going to happen. Well, there's a certain validity, of course, in working on our psychological process, on developing a a healthy, balanced and integrated psychology and equally physiology, working on our body. The way we can take that on is somehow the idea that first I must do all of this and then maybe I can even start to contemplate waking up after all of this is done. And yet this becomes rather like rearranging the furniture or redecorating the house. It might look much nicer inside but it's still inside a prison cell. No matter how many times you move the sofa or how many different colours you put on the walls, if you are confined within that, it is still imprisonment. And the idea that you've got to find a perfect colour scheme before you are willing to walk through the open door into freedom (coughs) is tragic and unnecessary. And of course, as we realize, and this is something we perhaps reflect on frequently in Dharma practice, we see that the process goes on and on. It is unending. Improvement has no end point. No matter how good we could get, we could always be better. The very nature of the mind that takes us into that process continues that process. So sometimes the fascination with becoming a better self or a perfect self needs to be seen very clearly as a blind alley. Somewhere that when we go down it, we just get lost. And to remember that the lotus grows in the muddy pond. It does not need clear... Water. What does that mean for us? What it means is to not dismiss or disregard the value of working on our process, but to not believe or imagine for a moment somehow. That the limitations in that working on our process are somehow, or what we still have to complete in that work, is somehow a bar or an obstacle to the mind of awakening being recognized within ourselves, within our being. We might imagine another view that arises is that. Well, I could live with all that difficult stuff that I've got to deal with, but actually I've got all this karma. I've done all these bad things. I've hurt all these people. I've hurt myself. I've broken the precepts how many times? One way or another. Intentionally or unintentionally. Surely someone who's this bad, or blind or stupid or confused or whatever, or occasionally cruel or deceitful, or selfish. That's not possible for me. I need to be pure, don't I? Before I could awaken. And yet again, to refer to the tradition, the story of Angulimala, a murderer of hundreds of people who, on meeting the Buddha and stopping, seeing where in the Buddha the momentum of creating karma had come to an end actually was able to stop in himself and awaken. Having killed hundreds of people. When you think about it, for all the bad things you've done in your life, or I've done in my life, and I don't know, maybe I'm wrong here, but I suspect none of you have killed hundreds of people. Certainly not intentionally, and strung their fingers around your neck. I mean, this guy, from all... It would seem conventional points of view is someone who has got way too much karma to wake up. And yet it was no obstacle. What it meant, it didn't mean that he was somehow freed from the effect of his karma. The story relates that he was in walking through the local villages where he was recognized as abandoned and a murderer, a robber and a murderer. People would throw rotten fruit and vegetables at him, even though he was a monk. And the Buddha told him, Just you have to bear with us. You have some fruit of karma, literally in this case. And again, just to see if we hold the idea that because I've done all the things I've done, or you've done all the things you've done, that somehow presents a barrier to awakening. It does not. Or we might imagine, you know, I've just got too much stuff. It's not so much that I realize I don't have to work it all out, but it's just too much, it's overwhelming. You know, I can't cope with it all. Again, if you look at the story of the Buddha and his stuff, you know, it seems like he had a really heavy trip laid on him by his parents. We sort of, you know, get into struggles with what our parents did or didn't do with us, or for us, or to us. And the very strong pressure that was placed on the Buddha not to seek the spiritual life, to stay in the worldly, in the material, to become a a good king or ruler in a temporal sense rather than entering into the spiritual life. And a degree of, it seems, a manipulation that he was exposed to in his early years to try and produce that end. It's like probably he had heaps of confusion. And stuff going on as a result of that. Having to leave his beautiful young wife and infant son. You know, he left. And the story is told that he relates that when he left, he said, you know, I didn't go and look at them when I left. And people think how hard-hearted, how callous he may have been. But no, he says, you know, if I had gone and looked upon their faces, I could not have left. It was that hard. It was that painful to take myself away. And yet he was called that powerfully, that deeply to do it. Something immensely human about this person. Prior to his awakening, and subsequent in fact. But seeing that, human like you, human like me. Not different, not different. Or we might think, again, we might conceive, and this is another variation on the theme of what I've already spoken about, but to see how the different language can sometimes catch us, we think, I need to purify myself. I need to become pure in order to awaken. And this is something that's, I think, very deep in us. We have this image and this archetype of something pure. And, There's something something really beautiful in that image, in that archetype, that sense of that to which we can aspire, that is without blemish, without defect. And yet, mostly what we tend to do with that is turn it towards a process of somehow trying to work through all the blemishes, to somehow wear them out, outlast them. And there's the... Again, the, the classical story of the Buddha's encounter with a Jain monk. And the Jains were a, uh, a spiritual group or sect, I guess you could say, tradition that existed at the time of the Buddha. It had many wonderful uh, characteristics amongst them, one of which was an incredible commitment to non-harming, which exists still to this day, to the degree that the monks and the nuns wear a mask over their face, prevent them inhaling insects and thereby harming them. and other such practices they undertake, deep compassion and sensitivity to living beings. But in this case the Buddha encountered this Jain monk standing on one leg and he said, "You know venerable friend, what are you doing?" The monk says, "I'm standing on one leg to purify my karma." And uh, the Buddha said, well, "That's interesting. So can you tell me how much of this karma you've got to purify? And the the monk said, actually no, I don't know. He said, can you tell me how much you've purified already? Actually, I don't know. He said, can you tell me how long it's going to take? He said, I've got no idea. He said, can you tell me how you will know when you're finished, when it's done? And the monk says, I don't know. He went on then to say, well, actually, from the sound of that, it's not going to work, is it? How would you know? How could it be that way? And suggested that instead, there was a process of understanding that was the basis of awakening. Not somehow a time-bound process of moving through a series of particular experiences, or a time-bound process of working through our particular history and its present or current manifestation, but something to be understood through the direct investigation, the direct penetration of the immediate experience of being alive. And that this is not about fixing or purifying ourselves or our experience, but about understanding something of its nature that transforms what it means to be without changing the actual experience itself mostly what we think is we want to change the experience because we believe that's what it's all about because we believe deep down in a way that it's really hard to see in ourselves that this is what we are this experience of life of thoughts and feelings of body and mind of sights and sounds and smells and touch and taste and although we might have some understanding that maybe it's not truly who we are, at some level it's so hard to see that because we're not quite sure who or what we will be if not this. And we're so invested in the process of improving it, making it look good, making it smell good, finding nice clothes for it, or nice sort of qualities for it to express in terms of personality. And while there's a place and a value in all of that activity, if we mistake that for the deepest, if we make that into the most important thing, we've lost something. We've missed something. And that that we've missed is right here. So there's the wonderful and one of my favourite dharma stories of Hui Ning who lived in the uh, Middle Ages in, in China known as the uh, well I'll tell the story I guess um, which again I guess some of you are familiar with it's rather famous Hui Ning was a kitchen hand illiterate and uh, uneducated working in a in a great monastery in China And the abbot of the monastery, who was a a great master known far and wide for his profound wisdom, realized he was coming to the end of his days. And he was considering who would be his successor as the abbot and dharma teacher of the monastery and of his lineage. And he decided that rather than simply appoint the most senior monk under him, he would invite all the monks to participate in a competition. And he invited them all to write a poem upon the wall of the monastery in a designated place to demonstrate the depth of their understanding and their realization. And he said that whoever presents or writes the most wisdom or clearest realization would be his successor. And so the most, uh, the next most senior monk in the, in the monastery went and wrote a poem on the wall. And having seen it, all the other monks in the monastery looked at oh, such wisdom. I have no chance of competing with that. They didn't even bother. But Huaning, hearing about this, working in the kitchen, and having had some uh, profound realisation of his own before he came to the monastery, he asked, he asked one of the other monks to read him this poem. And the poem went like this. The monk read it to him because he couldn't read. He said it went... The body is a Bodhi tree, the mind a mirror bright. Hour by hour we polish them, and let no dust alight. And one sees it at the sense of recognizing there's something holy, there's something profound about this body, a Bodhi tree, source of wisdom, a mind, a mirror bright, something precious. And hour by hour we polish them, to let no dust alight like that's going to go on for a while isn't it probably given the nature of the dust that falls Ning heard this and he said there is deeper wisdom than this and he asked the monk who had read the first poem to him to write his own poem on the wall and his poem went there is no Bodhi tree nor stand of mirror bright since all is void and empty Where could the dust alight? Remarkable poem. He's not denying the dust that falls, that we could perhaps be wiping away. But the deeper practice is to see and to understand. There is no Bodhi tree, nor stand of mirror bright. Since all is void and empty, where could the dust alight? And the story goes that the next day, after the competition had closed, when the abbot came down to look at the two poems, he very clearly pointed to the second poem, that of Hui Ning as the deeper wisdom, and anointed Huaining as his successor. And the story goes, uh, rather unfortunately, in a certain sense, that the rest of the nuns sorry, the monks I don't think there were nuns in this monastery um, the rest of the monks were enraged by the idea that the kitchen hand, who wasn't even a monk, had become the abbot, and so he had to flee. With the, uh, the robe and bowl of uh, his uh, sort of uh, new found status, and eventually uh, set up a monastery elsewhere. But this teaching that there is nowhere for the dust to alight, to understand this is to realize freedom. In the midst of the dust, Huaining's poem does not suggest there is no dust. And of course, for this, in this image I'm sure this is obvious to you, but part of the, sort of the, the role of sitting at the front here is to say what's obvious, as though one had never heard it before. And actually, part of the job of one listening is to hear what one has heard and is obvious many times before, as though one has heard it the first time. So it kind of goes together for both of us here, all of us. But the dust falling, there is that which we could call defilement or impurity, which clearly is, you know, harmful, unwholesome, greed, hatred, delusion, confusion, that generates dukkha, it seems. And yet to see that there is no owner of this, that it lands in emptiness, there is no one who is defiled. If there is no one who is defiled, if there is no mirror upon whom the dust is landing, what need have we to keep wiping away the dust? It's simply an image we're holding, an idea we attach to. And it runs so deep, and yet not beyond the depth of the wisdom that is available to you, to each of us, to see this, and in seeing it release that belief. If we look at our mind, if we look at what goes on, what tends to happen is the focusing on experiences, on what's going on, on thoughts, on feelings, on images, on ideas. We focus on them. And in doing so, we tend to somehow pluck them out of the fabric of totality. We pluck them out. It's the way the mind works. It pulls into a sense of particularity, into a sense of individuality or specificity or separateness or self, essentially. Anything that it attaches to, anything that it focuses upon, becomes a particular. And in doing so it creates the sense of self and other. Creates the sense and the experience of separation, which is essentially suffering. The deepest suffering is the belief in, the identification with, and the felt experience of somehow the totality having been breached or broken or shattered, fragmented even and feeling in a way we can't even quite conceive to be a fragment amongst other fragments. And the suffering is not just that sense of fragmentation and separation, but the fundamental untruth of it. The fundamental untruth of it is that we are somehow unaligned or out of alignment with that deeper truth. And this is actually deeply painful to our hearts. And deeply painful for a reason, because it's saying there's something here to wake up to. There's something now to be realized. And why it does that, how it does that, is that when we focus on particular experiences, we're doing so with an agenda, with a particular orientation, which is, what's in this for. That unquestioned sense of me. Even if we're not thinking that thought, even if someone said, No, I'm not doing it for me, most of the time we are. We're doing it for me. And what happens is then that everything becomes something that's got something for me, and I'm attracted to it, or it could do something to me, therefore I want to get rid of it, or It's not offering me anything, nothing for or against. I'm not interested in it. And the pleasant or the desirable or the flattering, the unpleasant, the painful or the threatening, the neutral, the boring, the uninviting. These all experiences have that characteristic of one thing or another, one of those aspects or another, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral as we've spoken about. And what happens is, when we're relating to them from a place of separateness, from a place of self, all things as individual particulars have significance. They're going to give it to me, do it for me, or they're going to stop me. They're going to be the obstacle. They're going to be the problem, the bar to my happiness, the solution to my happiness, or the bar to my happiness. And consequently, we get really involved with them. Because it seems like this material, what we call experience, thoughts, feelings, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, that's all it is. There is nothing that we encounter but this. And all of this, when we focus on it, emphasizes, amplifies, solidifies the sense of separateness. separateness in the the object, that which we're attending to, and the sense of separateness in the subject, that which is attending. So sometimes, what we're invited to do in Dharma practice, when there's some steadiness, when there's some stillness in heart and body and mind, is actually to begin to rest, not in the focusing on, but in the simple recognizing of the field of experience itself. Recognizing, contacting, allowing the very touch of the field of experience, of life, to actually begin to be felt, to be sensed directly. When we don't focus on particulars, we don't create a sense of separation, of self. When we actually allow the sense of interwoven totality to be felt, to be known. When we're not buying into the belief systems we have with it, around it. then something else happens. Each and every experience offers us the same possibility. That rather than investing it as the solution or the obstacle, it's simply an invitation to recognize what is revealed through the fact that the experience is revealed. What is to be seen from the fact that we can see things? It's not something that we can see directly. At least not with the organs of the sense-oriented mind. Not with eyes and ears. Or with nose or tongue. Or with body Or the intellectual mind. Can't be seen, can't be known, can't be touched with any of these. And yet the very functioning of all of these reveals something more than what they are. Something not limited by what they reveal. To see and understand purity is to understand that it's not that purity in its deeper sense is not about good or bad, or right or wrong. It's about understanding that there's an element in all things which is of sameness. Not to say that everything is identical, because clearly things are individual and particular. In one sense. But there is that within all things which is universal and indivisible. And rather than even saying there is that within all things, one could more usefully say there is that within which all things are. All things are within this. But what happens easily is then we start to think, oh, well, what's that? Oh, is that God? Is that truth? Is that consciousness or awareness? We start to make something of it. We make it into an object itself. And it's not that. If we make something of it, it's not that. So this is a little bit of a difficult position, really. It's a bit of a quandary for the mind. And yet, again we might start to think, Oh, it's beyond me. I can't do that. I can't go there. It's not true. Don't believe that thought. Sometimes we think the Buddha, well, he was perfect. He perfected the human qualities. And this is what made him the Buddha. And therefore he had somehow risen above the world. Not so. He relates in his life many stories, including a time when he's walking along and uh, stands on a splinter of rock and experiences what he describes as painful, racking feelings in his foot, in his body. And related that to a situation where, in a past life, he'd caused harm to his mother. He was actually relating a story of being a, a little uh, fawn and getting under his mother a doe's feet and uh, her hurting herself. And this kind of very literal relationship sometimes drawn in traditional teachings, which I'm not sure if I totally relate to it as literal. But in terms of him having an experience he could see... As having been born out of his past action, causing him pain in the present, that still continued for him, although he was fully awake and enlightened. So the fact that this keeps, the fact that my knee or your knee still hurts, is no evidence that somehow we're not there yet. Although, for me, the remarkable, the remarkable. Uh, story. In fact, this, uh, before coming to the remarkable, another one that I find very touching where one evening the Buddha, having been teaching the Dharma to the monks and to the nuns until midnight for several hours, he was teaching them. And he was getting up into his later years at this time. He turned to his attendant, Ananda and he said, Ananda, my back hurts. It's aching. I think I'll lie down and rest. But the monks and the nuns are bright and full of attention, so you teach them some dharma. I'm going to, you know, knock off for the evening, basically. And again, there's something wonderfully human about someone in that situation. You can say, my back hurts. I think I need to lie down here. Again, to not make the Buddha into someone different than you or me. Because that doesn't sound that different. Had a sore back, thought I'd better lie down. Let someone else do the work. Sure, sounds good to me. Or, as I was going to say, the uh, and I find a more remarkable story. You know, the Buddha, who is understood as being awakened and free by his own affirmation, by the recognition of many others. After he was enlightened, he reflected on what shall I do, and. Here he was, he just awakened to full, complete, unexcelled enlightenment, liberation, freedom. And what he thought was, hmm, shall I teach this remarkable thing that I've just realized? And he thought, well, you know, if I try and teach this, because this is profound, if I try and teach this, mostly people aren't going to understand it. And that's going to really be a pain. It's going to bother me. So I don't think I will. Remarkable thought. Having just awakened So that presumably bliss, delight and complete liberation, the thought that people won't understand what he's saying means, I don't think I'll bother. It would irritate me, so I won't. So there's something human in this. though. Of course, and fortunately for us, um, the story relates how uh, the uh, Brahma Sahampati came to him and said, No, please Buddha, teach. Some of the people will understand. There are those with little dust in their eyes. And so the Buddha went on to teach his dharma, teach the dharma. But the fact that he could consider not doing it, because it might be a pain if people didn't get it. Wow. Human being. Awake and a human being. There are many stories like this in the canon. And why I relate them is not in any way to take away from the profound respect that I and one could have, you could have perhaps, for the Buddha and it's a remarkable achievement, we could say. It's immense wisdom and compassion. But to see his humanity as well. And not just the Buddha, but the other monks and nuns as well. This is the story of a, a group of fully enlightened monks who had to cross a river. Um, it was actually probably a medium sized stream. And the story goes that uh, they all were doing it very sort of with a great degree of sort of mindfulness and decorum. Because they were fully enlightened monks, after all. But one of them just jumped into the stream, splashed about, ran around laughing, got his robes all wet and, laughing his head off, ran off down the path. And the other monks thought, this is not right, and went to talk to the Buddha about it. He said, it's not okay. He's supposed to be fully enlightened. He can't act that way. The Buddha said, it's fine. Actually, he was a monkey in his last life. He's like that, you know. And the Buddha often comes up with these little sort of vignettes to explain what's going on. More important to me than the fact that he was a monkey was that he could be fully enlightened and still take delight in playing silly games in water and running about like a child. We don't have to somehow erase that capacity within us to be light, to be joyful, to be childish and even silly in order to be awake. And the fact that the other monks got upset about it was even more significant, you know. So they were in land and they still got upset? What does that mean? What does that mean for you and for me? Right here and now. It is so easy to put it off and say, well, no, actually it sounds a good idea, but maybe not now. You know, the Buddha apparently spent many lifetimes. Hundreds, if not thousands Of lifetimes becoming enlightened. So I guess, you know, we might think, sure, me too. I've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of lifetimes to go. But do you know how many lifetimes you've already been through? How do you not know that this isn't the one, number 100,000? It's just as likely as not. In fact, probably more likely. What happens if you let that in? Could be just sort of, oh yeah, it's kind of an amusing idea. But can you let in that that's speaking about something that's possible that isn't many lifetimes away, that isn't somewhere distant from you or somewhere other than where you are? The Buddha once said that we have cried enough tears in our lifetimes to have filled the four great oceans. The bodies we have lived through countless lifetimes within, their bones piled up would be as high as the highest mountains. We have already lived long enough to know. Even in this lifetime, how many lessons do we need? How many times do we again need to learn that which is already in front of us? Haven't we seen, heard, Felt, experienced enough already to understand that there which we take hold of cannot give us what we seek. And that only in letting it go, letting it all go, can freedom touch us. Can realisation dawn within us. Within you, each of you. Give up doing it for yourself. There's nothing you're going to get from this. Nothing you're going to get from this. You know, the Buddha once said, I gained absolutely nothing from complete, perfect, unexcelled enlightenment. That is why it is complete, perfect, unexcelled enlightenment. Trungpa Rinpoche said, enlightenment is a disappointment for the ego. Pretty much the same thing, really. And as to the effect of doing it, trying to do this for ourselves, really one can't go beyond the words of Wei Wu Wei, a Chinese mystic. He said, why do you suffer? You suffer because 99.9% of what you do is for yourself. And there isn't one. Just that. (coughs) Just that. (coughs) So, what is it that we're invited to realize? To wake up to? To believe it is possible. And this isn't a contradiction to say that this is possible for me. This is possible for you. And at the same time understand this is not for myself. It is for what you truly are. It is for that which is most fundamentally real. Which is not other than what you are. And it is not something you can get. Enlightenment is not something that comes at the end of or is the result or produced by what you have done. What practice enables is the letting go of all those obstacles that we hold on to. The veils that we cling to. That cut out the light. That blind, it seems. Tragically blinds our heart. To its own radiance. But its radiance is not something we produce or have to make. We simply need to let go of all that we hold that is not that. It's not anything that we can gain, because if it was, it would be something we could lose, and it is not something we can lose. All of our practice doesn't bring us any closer to it. And equally, all of our errors do not take us any further away from it. Because it is outside of the realm of time and space, of distance and duration. This does not apply. So we cannot conceive of relating from those places in any way that is useful. Suffering is born of not seeing. Avidya. Not seeing. Blindness. Not seeing that which is true. So are we looking somewhere else? Are we looking for something else? Are we looking away from where we are? to the next sitting, to the next day, to the next retreat, to the next lifetime. It's not there. To the next moment, it's not there. It's not there. It's here. It's this. Only this. Always this. When we're pulled out of here... Into looking for that somewhere else. This is dukkha, this is suffering, this is samsara, moment by moment. And we can't find what we're looking for because that which is looking is not different than that which we are looking for. That which we seek is that which is sinking. That which we aspire to know is that which knows. What if the movement stopped right now? If we weren't going anywhere, And yet we're not fixed in any location right here. So we're unlocated and unlocatable. What is this that shines? Unnameable, ungraspable. And yet when we stop completely unmissable, unmissable, Because immediate, omnipresent, and yet not noticed because we it's so ordinary, so unspectacularly normal. Closer than the very thoughts that move in our head, hopelessly trying to grasp it. that cessation. The seeker dissolves into the sort. The movement of from and towards dissolves. And what is left is simply what is. And we can try and name it that's okay so long as we know that that's just a name but much more is to know it and the knowing that recognizes what was and will be and is is just this and there is nothing else and nowhere else And even the mind that believed it was elsewhere never was. Coming to rest where we are and to know this. Rumi says I have lived on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons. Knocking on a door. It opens. I've been knocking from the inside. I have lived on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons, knocking on a door. It opens. I've been knocking from the inside. may you all come to rest right where you are. To know the open doorway of truth. To abide in the radiance of the awakened heart. For the welfare of all beings. Please continue to practice.